we are rolling. Um, Matt, are you there? I am here. Okay, this is another edition of Kaiju Transmissions. As always, I'm your host. My name is Kyle Bird, and um, as you just heard, my co-host Matt is also present with us. You're still there, right? <laughs> I'm still here. Okay, you were quiet for for a while. I got worried. Um, today we have two special guests. We have John DeSentis, who is a connoisseur of uh, film music, and uh, you may know him as the organizer and conductor for the Ifukube 100 and Symphonic Fury concerts from a few years ago. And also with us is Mr. Eric Homenick, who runs ikiraifukube.org and has had the blessing of the Ifukube family to be his official, United, uh, I guess, English-language biographer. Uh, so, gentlemen, if you don't mind saying hello to the people out there in podcast land. Well, hello. This is Eric. I'm very happy to be here, Matt and Kyle. Uh, this is John. Thanks for having us on, guys. Uh, it's a pleasure, and I hope we get to talk about some good stuff. All right. Yeah, no no doubt. Um, and uh, if people haven't already, um, John, I was at, and Eric, because you also had a hand in it as well, I was at both of those concerts, and they were awesome. And people can find both of those in CD form. I highly recommend them. Um, and also, if you haven't visited Eric's site, akirafukube.org, uh, there is a, holy crap, comprehensive, dense, dense biography of the man. Um, and uh, Eric, I know that you've stated many times that this is more or less your book. Yeah, it is. It's my book in electronic form that is free of charge to anybody that is uh, interested in going to look at it, again, at akiraifukube.org. Uh, it's been something that I've been working on for literally over a decade, for about 11 years now. And at some point, you know, due to popular com- uh, demand, I, I, I intend to do a book version of it at some point. Uh, Have you thought about doing like the self-publish or print-on-demand kind of thing? Well, I've definitely thought about self-publishing, but I've had people such as Steve Rifle, who of course is coming out with Ed Godzijewski with their Ishiro Honda biography in a few months here, uh, uh, urging me that I should shop it around to to publishers, to to, to legit publishers, because they, they think it would... It would make the grade, and that's what I intend to do. I, when, when the thing is done, and I have no idea when it's going to be done, uh, it's going to be a few years at least, I don't know, two, three years, something like that. Um, but when it's done and ready to be uh, shopped around, I'm going to do that, and we'll see what happens. I, I think that it's it, it, certainly as it stands now, it, it reads as a book. You go on the website, you can look at it. It reads as if you were reading a book on my very old school website. But but my intention was to write it as if it were a book. So we'll we'll see what happens. It's it's my intention, and if it's if it's picked up by a by a publisher, great. If it comes down to me having to self publish it, maybe I'll do it at at that point. We'll have to see what happens. But at any rate, it's my book in free electronic form, so I encourage any of your listeners to go and check it out. But when it's done, we'll see what happens. My 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 hope is that it will be a book one day. Yeah, it's a great resource, and I know 
when Matt and I first ta- started talking about doing a podcast, I wanted, like right out the gate, I said, I don't want it to be like any other kaiju podcast out there where we'll just talk and like make fun of the movies. Like I want to actually be able to communicate to people why these movies are the way they are and know about the people that made them. And uh, unfortunately, I think film scoring is a little bit more niche than, say, you know, directing and, and stuff like that. But uh, it's out there. Um, I was on there earlier today. It looks like, Eric, you have probably up to like the mid mid to late 60s covered. Yeah. So as it stands now, at the time of this podcast, we start from his life from his birth in 1914, actually a little bit before that, because we, we talked a little bit about his family history, and then up to 1970. So um, he dies in uh, 2006. <laughs> so I'm at 1970 right now, so I've got a ways to go. But I think the hardest part, though, was actually doing what I've done up to this point, because very interestingly about him is that there were not a lot of records kept about about his early life. I mean, there, certainly there are records that that are that are there that you can look at and, and talk to people, but but he didn't talk a whole lot about his his early life. There's a lot of um, a lot of gaps to be filled in in between episodes in his life, and that's sort of what I've been doing all this time is is doing my best to fill in those gaps. But as we get into 1970. And then onward, you know, I think his life is much more public. His his children have a better re- recollection of what he was doing at that time. So those will be gaps that are actually easier to fill in. The farther back you go, the harder it is. But um, it's it's going to definitely be another several years before I'm done with the biography. But now that we're in 1970, I, I kind of have the feeling that going forward, it'll be a little bit easier to write. Um, you know, because if you're going back to his youth in the 19 teens and the 1920s, I mean, this is stuff that's almost, or pra- for all intents and purposes, a century ago. So, you know, people don't have recollections of that, or or people may have heard a story about an episode that happened at that time, but they're not sure if it's true or not. So, that's the hard part. The hardest part, I think, is actually over. Yeah. Um, well. It's great to be able to talk about um, some, like, you know, a composer and have this information, especially when it's it's already hard enough to find English language material that, that covers stuff like this. So, yeah, no, it's a, it's a great resource. And um, so I guess uh, Eric and John, I guess I'll start with... Um, you know, well, I, I'll come right out and say the, the meat of this podcast is going to be the original 1954 Godzilla. Uh, but before we go into that, uh, I think Matt and I have some general Ifukube questions we want to run by you guys. But before we do that, even, um, just tell us who was Akira Ifukube and um, I guess just lead us into how he even got the gig doing the 54 film. Well, Akira Ifukube was born in Kushiro, Hokkaido, and Hokkaido is the northernmost island of Japan on May 31st, 1914. And his father was a a former army man who had moved up to Hokkaido because at that time it, it was considered to be the last frontier of Japan. It was quite remote, quite far to the north. 
and they needed people to go up there to work, to to be farmers, to be laborers, and in the case of his father, to be a police officer. So with his military background, Ifukube's father, Toshizo, moved his family up to northern Japan in order to fulfill this need for uh, for law and order, for, to, to be a police officer. They settled in a small town called Kushiro, and that's where he was born. And when the composer was born, he moved all around that island. His father was constantly being moved around. You know, this town needed a police chief, then this town needed a police chief, so the family moved all over the island. And then between when, when the composer was between the ages of 9 and, and 12, they went to a town in Hokkaido called Otofuke. And it was in this town that Ifukube really began as a youngster to develop his interest in music. He was exposed not only to Japanese folk music, but also uh, 78 RPM recordings of European classical music, and also the music of the Ainu. The Ainu are the indigenous people of northern Japan. They are not ethnically Japanese. It's a population of people that is in northern Japan as well as the Russian Far East. And as a youngster, he heard these three types of music and was, as a result of hearing these musics, very fascinated by them and sort of internalized the sounds of these music, uh, these different musical traditions, and thought that maybe he would want to become a musician himself. So he heard these, these three types of music kind of coming together in his head. And of course, growing up in northern Japan, it was a very rural place to live not like metropolitan Honshu, which is the main island of, of Japan, Tokyo and Osaka and all the big Japanese cities on that island. So he grew up in the country, listening to all of these types of musics and just sort of developed this appreciation not only for music, but also for, for nature. As a youngster, he collected insects and reptiles and, and, and animals such as this, and even at one point considered the animals that he collected to be his best friends. And this, this environment in which he lived just inspired him to, to become the artist that he, he later became. So he, he went to college in, in Sapporo, which is the main city of, of Hokkaido, and he actually majored in uh, forestry and went on to become a forestry officer in, in northern Japan. And when he was living in the remote woods of Akeshi Hokkaido, in a cabin, literally isolated, between the, the years of 1935 and 1939-1940, would compose his earliest musical pieces at night by the light of an oil lamp, in complete isolation, while animals such as bears tried to break into his cabin you know, he would sometimes sleep at night clutching his rifle because the bears were trying to get into his cabin because they could smell the food that he was cooking. So he just had such an interesting formation as a human being, being so inspired by the natural world that surrounded him, being inspired by these three very different musical traditions, Japanese traditional music, Ainu traditional music, and European classical music coming together in his head. So... He sought to express in music, he wanted to become a composer, so he sought to express in his music 
the spirit of 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 Japan of the Japanese people because up to that point there were no composers that really focused on that he wanted to be sort of the first composer that really took Japanese music and make it well known in the west by means of a symphony orchestra and he saw that as being the most efficient and best way of, of making Japanese or Asian music known in the West by means of, an or, uh, of a Western-style orchestra. So his background is very rich, and his, the, the amount of inspiration that went into his what would eventually end up being his musical style is, is very rich. So what exactly led him to uh, film scoring, and furthermore, how and why Godzilla? Well, he after the war uh, in 1946, friend Fumio, who I'm sure many of your listeners will know because he scored many Kurosawa films. What was that name? Fumio Hayasaka. Okay. So Fumio Hayasaka was the guy that scored Rashomon. He was the guy that scored uh, Seven Samurai, among other films. They were best friends growing up in Hokkaido. And in 1939, Hayasaka had actually moved from Hokkaido to Tokyo to get involved in the Japanese film industry to score films. And after the war, uh, in 1946, by that point, Hayasaka had already been well-established in Tokyo as a film composer for Toho. And Ifukube wasn't quite sure what he was going to do with his life, and Hayasaka said to his friend Ifukube, well, why don't you come to Tokyo and try your hand at being a film composer? So Yves Kube moved from Hokkaido actually to Nikko, not Tokyo. Nikko was about a three-hour bus ride north of Tokyo. He couldn't move into Tokyo at the time because right after the war, if you didn't have official business or family in Tokyo, the American occupation restricted people who could come and live in Tokyo. So Yves Kube lived in Nikko and would take a train once a week down to Tokyo to, to teach at a university and would uh, take the train back up. It was very, it was a very arduous living, a very arduous commute. But in but in 1947, Yves Kube scored his first film for Toho, which is called Snow Trail, Ginre no Hate in Japanese, which is a film. Maybe you guys have seen it. It's got it's Toshiro Mifune's first film. It was um, it has a uh, screenplay co-written by Akira Kurosawa, and. Uh, so that, that, that's how he got into the film industry, because his friend Hayasaka invited him to come, ga- come down, and he eventually was able to, to break in. So by the time that Godzilla was being uh, prepared to be filmed in 1954, he had already been scoring films from 19- since 1947. And um, he, uh, Ifukube's music had a certain largeness and bombast about it that was well-known. In fact, there was even an interview where Ifukube said that his scores had a reputation as being the most expensive to record because his scores were so big they required the most amount of musicians. So I think that when it was time to score the original Godzilla movie in 54, he was the, the natural choice because he was known for having probably the biggest sound of all of the Japanese composers at the time. So, and he had worked for Toho before. 
So they, the people at Toho were, were very well aware of what his style was, what he was capable of. And I think that's what it was. I think that he was the most bombastic film composer in Japan at the time, so he was a natural choice to score that film. Can we talk about for a minute the, the kinds of instruments that he would typically use and what made him different from maybe some other composers that he would have been in competition for at Toho? I will defer that to John. Um, based on the scores that uh, I've had the fortune to look over, they were all Western instruments. I mean, despite what you may read elsewhere, uh, the, he didn't use a bamboo flute in the score to Godzilla in 1954. Um, what he was really good at doing, though, was that he was really, really, really good at making Western instruments sound um, like like traditional ethnic instruments, like um, the uh, the Oda Island sacrifice music that I just mentioned. Um, the the only remotely ethnic instrument on that entire track, I think, what what was it? Uh, the Biengu, Eric? Was it? Yeah, uh, Pienku, Yeah, Pienku, uh, which was a Chinese, like a, almost like a Chinese. Uh, drum and that you could strike the sides of so that's what people when you hear that 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 ta, 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 like that's not a wood block that's striking the side of the piengu um that was pretty much the only ethnic instrument that he used there but otherwise it was uh he used a harp and he had uh he had violins one through four kind of suspended in these like um like these these fourth harmonies that or these these major seconds like split up by a fourth uh, between the first second third and fourth uh, violins, and you got like this religious air and they just kind of suspend there almost like 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 spirits in the air and he was just so good at kind of making Western instruments sound like they were um, like they were ethnic but uh, from everything I've seen it, it just what you'd standardly find in a symphony orchestra. Was there a particular reason why he wanted to rely on Western instruments as opposed to using traditional, maybe Eastern instruments? I mean, like, was that something that, that was, what was the purpose behind that? Or did he have one, do you know? Uh, well, I mean, he, he, his training, if you even look at like his classical scores, I mean, he wrote in the, in the standard, like, like whatever, like, like, as we know, of like Western classical music, I mean, so I'm guessing he just chose the instruments that he knew really how to write for but he was he was he was good at writing for anything and there were times when he would bring in um like an ethnic instrument here and there and eric can elaborate on this but he actually had a pretty extensive collection of i think chinese instruments and uh i'm, I'm just i'm i would just guess that because the um the requirements of what he was scoring at the time um I would I would almost like paraphrase what Jerry Goldsmith said about when he was writing the score to Chinatown. You know, if you do something like a period piece, like you know, emotions are emotions no matter no matter what. I mean, you feel tragedy the same way in 1937 that you feel it today. So I don't think necessarily that just because he was scoring Japanese films, and if this is I think this is what what you're asking. Um, I don't think that just because he's scoring Japanese films that he necessarily had to use Japanese ethnic instruments. I mean, I just think he was a good film composer and he was resorting to the standard symphony orchestra, which is one of the greatest inventions that man has ever come up with. 
Yeah, he he did he did have a very wide collection of of Chinese instruments and traditional Asian instruments, Japanese instruments, and occasionally he would incorporate those into some of his scores. In Godzilla, what John is referring to is the Odo Island uh, exorcism music. Uh, those are all Western instruments, ex- save for this Jap or, or I'm sorry, this Chinese drum called a pianku, which undoubtedly was from his personal collection. And you know, he it, it is it's an interesting question because there's a lot of Japanese composers out there since Ifukube who have incorporated more Japanese instruments into their into their works, like if. You think about the composer Toru Takamitsu. He did a concerto for Western Orchestra and Biwa, which is sort of a, a Japanese lute. Um, Ifukube did a similar concerto later in his life for orchestra and Koto, which is a large Japanese zither. But I, yeah, I think first and foremost, Ifukube was interested in using Western instruments, in u- using a Western orchestra to transmit the spirit of Asian music to the rest of the world. Occasionally, he would bring in authentic ethnic instruments, but I think it was his his intent to use a Western orchestra to to portray this Japanese spirit as much as possible. And he was quite quite adept at taking Western instruments and making them imitate very very well, very effectively the sounds of traditional Asian instruments. It's uh, you know it's sort of a cliche when you talk about uh, East meets West. If you're talking about sort of fusion cuisine or in this case fusion music, I think Yves Kube was actually very legitimately talented and very adept at. In terms of the, in terms of the art of music, creating this paradigm of East meets West, and uh, he did it very successfully. And it's it's also worth noting that, despite the fact that his tools were Western instruments as we know them, um, his like his modal writing, like the things he would do, as far as and again. Um, not not getting too stuffy with musical terminology, but just the the way that he would construct his his movements and his melodies and, and harmony and counterpoint and all that, um, those those kind of constructs using the tools of the Western um, of like Western instruments really created this very unique voice for him. And the best I, I think Eric said it to me one time best. His music was. Um, Japanese from the inside out, not Japanese from the outside in. And he applied all that to his something as big as a Godzilla theme, um, or even as small as, you know, like the night music from Battle of Matter Space. You know, he was just very good at that. And I think you'd be hard pressed to truly find a more pure Japanese musical artist than Yves Kube, but I might be biased in saying that. <laughs> So did he, uh, I guess it's worth asking since we're talking about his methods, was he a uh, a classical concert composer or a film composer first? Well, he was most definitely a classical composer first. He started writing music around the age of 16 or 17. 
And these were musical pieces for either solo guitar or solo piano, solo piano and voice. And again, you know, before the war and during the war, he wrote several classical pieces. And I don't think at that time he had any inkling that he would eventually become a film composer. It was Fumio Hayasaka, his best friend, who I mentioned earlier, that had moved down to Tokyo in 1939 that really got into that almost a decade before Ifukube did. After the war, Ifukube really didn't have any idea what he would do for a career. And it was Hayasaka that said, well, you know, why don't you come down and do what I've been doing? Try your hand at writing music for films. Hmm. And so Ifukube was sort of desperate. He didn't have any idea what he was going to do to, to make money. He had, at that point, he had already had um, uh, two daughters. His family was growing. And when he scored his first film, Snow Trail, in 1947, he was so overwhelmed by the experience, he had never done anything like it. Um, he had written for each scene, he had, he had recalled in an interview that he, for each scene in the movie, he wrote a separate piece of music, not, he was completely unaware that you could have a light motif or a certain theme that would represent a character that would be reoccurring throughout the film. He thought that for every, for every new scene, you had to have a completely new piece of music. And he found that to be a challenge because it was so new to him. And he later, and, and we certainly see this when we get into the Godzilla films, you know, by that point, he definitely developed the idea of a, of a theme or a leitmotif. Godzilla had his theme, Rodan had his theme, uh, Mothra had her theme, and he would recycle these themes from, from scene to scene within one film or from film to film. But when he started out, he had no concept of this. He thought that every scene had to have a new piece of music. So oh, wow. he, he, he learned very quickly that, that's, that he didn't have to do it quite that way. So we're not quite at 54 yet, and we, we mentioned Kurosawa. Um, I, myself, am a huge Kurosawa fan, and I wanted to kind of touch on the working relationship between these two because they worked together once – on uh, mm-hmm. the quiet duel and uh it didn't quite go well uh, the the two really had some clashes and i understand a lot of it was because kurosawa being kurosawa was very adamant about telling him what he wanted a, a scene to sound like or do either of you want to elaborate on what really what the process of scoring the quiet duel and uh, i guess the tensions between these two guys um, yeah, well, see, the thing about Kurosawa was that Kurosawa was himself a very big classical music fan. So he would hear pieces of music and want his composer to compose pieces of music that sounded similar to pre-existing pieces that he had heard. Uh, this is why he and Hayasaka got along so well, because Hayasaka was very acquiescent to Kurosawa's demands. For example, in Rashomon, there is that piece of music that sounds like Maurice Ravel's Bolero. And uh, Kurosawa said to Hayasaka, I want you to compose a piece of music for my film that sounds like the Bolero by Maurice Ravel. Kurosawa said, 
okay. Um, the the relationship between Ifkube and if and and Kurosawa and Hayes and and uh, Kurosawa were both very hard nosed people. Kurosawa would have these very these very concrete ideas, and Ifkube would have his very concrete ideas as well. So when they were collaborating, Kurosawa said, I want you to compose a piece of music like such and such composer. And Ifkube said, no, don't tell me what to do. Don't, you know, you hire me as the composer. You hire me as the musician. When you hire me, I will compose music based on my ideas, not yours. To, to come to me and say, do this in this way, that's not very good for a composer's way of thinking. So they, they have these clashes these artistic clashes because because of that uh, because they were both so hard nosed and, and pig headed, oh, yeah. and so that'll happen. Yeah, so if Kube after that said, okay, well, you know, I'm not going to compose any more music for this director because he's he's too. He's too hands-on. And by the way, that's why Akira Ifukube loved working with Ishiro Honda, because Ishiro Honda was exactly the opposite. That's probably why him and Kurosawa were such good collaborators. Yeah, probably. But but Honda gave gave Ifukube a lot of artistic license. He basically said, whatever you want to do, I'm good with. Um it was it was a complete opposite uh, uh, situation from working with Kurosawa. So after the Quiet Duel, uh, Ifukube respected Kurosawa, and I don't think there was too much bad blood or animosity between the two of them personally. But I think Ifukube realized that working with a director like that was just not for him because Kurosawa would not allow him the opportunities to to really be himself when it came to the scoring of the films. What's interesting is um, on the. I'm not sure if anybody else here owns the Quiet Duel DVD. Yeah, I do. There's an interview with the Fukube on yes. there. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. So you've seen that. That was interesting because number one, that was that was actually conducted. Uh, that interview was conducted at the end of his life, obviously, but uh, very sharp in the details. You remember, and he had. I, I think that subject came up, and he had uh, recounted a story about actually giving Kurosawa a ride home from the studio at one point because he had a. Or was it the opposite way around? Like Kurosawa gave him a ride home, but um, yeah, I, I I don't think that they there was animo- active animosity. Just sometimes people just don't work well in situations. Yeah, yeah, and like I and like I said, you know, Hayasaka would just anything that Kurosawa said, Hayasaka did. Uh, you know, Kurosawa saying if Kube do this, and if Kube says no, I don't want to do that. No, do it. No, I don't want to do it. It just it, it wasn't. It just it just wasn't a, a relationship that that would have ever worked in the long run. Um, well, that kind of, in a way, segues into a question I wanted to ask. We're talking about how Kurosawa would say, I want this to sound like this other thing. Um, so we know kind of the musical influences that Kurosawa would have or that he would um, kind of uh, point his composers to. Um did Ifukube, either in his earlier career or by the time he passed away, did he become a fan of film music? Were there any composers, Western or Japanese, that he particularly enjoyed or even maybe had as an influence on his, his own work? 
No, I don't think so. I, I think that his attitude towards film music in general is actually quite problematic. He saw class, his classical compositions, his concert compositions, as being very, very uh, different from film music. They were a world away from each other. I, I think, and I hate to say this because it, I don't want to give the impression that he was completely um, nihilistic when it came to the subject of film music, but I really do feel that he saw film music on a quite lower level, significantly lower level than his classical compositions. Uh, the, the film music that he wrote, and he was good at writing film music, and he often enjoyed writing film music. In fact, in an interview, he said that he, above any other type of genre, he loved writing for kaiju music, or kaiju films, more than any other genre. He, he enjoyed it. But no matter what, I think he saw it as intrinsically less credible or less artistically viable than something written for the concert hall. Um, a great example of this is when Fumio Hayasaka died. Fumio Hayasaka died, if I'm not mistaken, in 1956. 55, I think, actually. 50, 55? Yeah. And uh, when Hayasaka, at Hayasaka's funeral, Ifkube attended it, what music did they play to commemorate his death? Well, they played a piece of music from The Seven Samurai. And Yves Kube was actually offended by this. He thought to himself, why would they play a piece of his film music at his funeral? They should have played one of his concert compositions because to play a piece of his film music, they're playing some of his lesser music. They should have played something better. Okay. That's, in that's so, really interesting. Yeah, and, and Yves Kube was genuine, genuinely offended that, that uh, selection from The Seven Samurai was played at, at Hayasaka's funeral. So Yves Kube... He he did it. He he did film music because it, it, it paid the bills. And to be quite frank, it made him a very rich man. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, I think he put the most effort into his concert scores. And later in his life, he lamented the fact that, you know, he could spend two years on a concert composition and maybe a month or two on a film score. And it was always the film score that got remembered by the public yeah. that he spent the least amount of time on. But the concert composition that he put his heart and, his heart and soul into, nobody knew. Yeah. And that was a point of frustration for him. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, that's kind of, you know, what you do in pop culture is what, you know, people are going to remember, you know. I, um, so uh, we're definitely kind of talking about the man, the personality, uh, complex, complex guy. Uh, one thing that's out there, and I, I don't think it's, I think it's common knowledge at this point, is that um, if Fukube definitely had, uh, I guess, some some views that uh, could be considered nationalistic. Um, and I always thought that was interesting because, as being someone that scored so many of Ashiro Honda's movies, these humanist uh, stories. Um, I was always wondering if if Fukube either felt an internal conflict scoring those types of movies, or if he, he and Honda had ever kind of 
maybe clashed over the the two ideologies, especially when I think of a movie like Atragon, where where the whole point is the world could be saved if this guy would get over, you know, the loss of World War II and everything. Was that a complicated issue for him, and did it ever affect his relationship uh, with, you know, with Honda or anything like that? I, I don't think it affected it his relationship with Honda in a negative way. In fact, Steve Rifle and I were, were talking about this just a few weeks ago at G-Fest. It was very enlightening to watch his and Ed's panel uh, in anticipation of the release of their book about Honda's views on the war. You know, Honda was, was drafted into the military, I think three times and was very anti-war, but had to participate in it because he was drafted if Kubi, on the other hand, was very much uh, in support of the of Japan's efforts during the Second World War, so for example, when they made Godzilla Fifty Four, this was a conversation that Steve Rifle and I had. I material from a very very different perspective, and and regardless of that, they still got along very well. It's, you know, so much to the point that Yves Kube considered him one of the two, one of his two favorite directors to work with. I think Honda saw Godzilla 54 as, as a very humanist story, very anti-war, very anti-nuclear. Yves Kube's take on the story, though, was, was quite different. Um, you know, Yves Kube was a scientist during the Second World War. He, uh, uh, in, I think it was 1930, uh, 1943, 1944, a British warplane had been shot down over China. It was mostly made of wood in order to avoid radar detection. And this plane was shot down by the Japanese over China and sent to the laboratory where Yves Kube was working at that time um, in, uh, directly under the, uh, the, the imperial household to examine this plane in order to sort of reverse engineer it to they were they wanted to know about the technology about this plane so the japanese could adapt it for their own uh, for their own uses to build planes like this and after the war the uh, the bombings in hiroshima and nagasaki ifukube very naively couldn't believe that the west was that 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 technologically superior he couldn't believe it. He he really thought that Japan was going to be able to get a leg up over the West and, and, and defeat the West. He couldn't believe that the West was that far advanced of, of Japan. So this really left a bad taste in his mouth about technology. He thought that uh, technology was something that was being uh, abused by the West to to subjugate not only Japan, but, but uh, non-white people, basically. So... When the Godzilla script was proposed to him, he immediately fell in love with it because this was this was a monster that was impervious to all of the technology that defeated Japan during the war. Tanks, um, artillery, airplanes. Godzilla was impervious to all of it. Godzilla was sort of a representation of the the um, the powers of nature. It was nature versus technology. Godzilla being a, a representation of, of the forces of nature. He's a pagan god. And all of man's modern technology is more or less uh, futile, impotent, used against Godzilla. So 
he was attracted to the script for for that reason, and I, I he really put his heart and soul into that music because to him Godzilla was this representation. It was a totem of of nature's supremacy over technology. Uh, whereas you know Honda's view of it was was much more you know humanistic, anti nuclear, um, in a sense more political. Whereas Yves Kube's take on it was a little bit more for lack of a better word, metaphysical. Wow. Yeah, that's really interesting, especially right now with, uh, you know, there's the, with the constant debates over, you know, things like Shin Godzilla and intent of the director versus intent of other people. And so would you say overall that if Fukube and Honda had different interpretations of their own films? I would think so, and, and and certainly in terms of Godzilla, you know, uh, Honda saw Godzilla, as far as I can tell, as a as a as a warning against war, as a warning against nuclear weapons. You know, if uh, um, Doctor, you know, the other Godzillas may appear if. Uh, if we, uh, as we, if we as the human race keep uh, pursuing this technology, or as Yves Kube saw it as, like I said, as as nature's uh, ultimate supremacy over technology, that it doesn't matter how how far we go as puny little humans, if we create uh, uh, tanks or or atom bombs, even uh, Godzilla which represents the forces of primitive nature will always be stronger than that. So I think that it's, um, they both were very artistically philosophically invested in that film, but from completely different points of view. That's very interesting. Um, his, uh, the other movie I mentioned, his, his, if Fukube, has he, had he gone on record in saying anything similar in regards to say, um, like I mentioned Atragon, you know, who you have Captain Jinguchi, who is very stubborn and bitter about losing the war. And the whole arc of the movie is that he has to get over that. Um, was, has he ever said anything about that particular film? And, Maybe if that movie meant anything different than what, you know, it was what Honda was doing with it. You know, honestly, not that I'm aware. And John and I have actually talked about this. And what's again, what's interesting about his his attitude towards film scores, when you talk to his former colleagues, you ask them about what what did he say about such, such and such film score, this score, that score, this score, that score. And the answer is always the same. Uh, he didn't talk about his film scores very much. Mm-hmm. He talked about his classical compositions, but he didn't talk about his film scores. And I think the reason for that is that he he wrote them, and again, I hate to say this, but I think it's actually true. I think it got to a certain point, certainly by the early to mid-1960s, where he was writing scores just to to receive a paycheck. Yeah. And um, he was doing so many of them too. And, and, and he was. So, you know, I, I think that when it came to Atragon, there were some interesting things that he did with that score in terms of, you know, what language he used to do the, uh, the, the chant of the Mu empire and all that kind of stuff. But I think by that time he didn't, he didn't read so much into the politics of the film as he might've done in Godzilla. I think by yeah. that time it was, it was more or less a routine special effects. Yeah, and it, at that point he was pro- he was doing two, three a year, probably. You know? Oh, at least. Yeah. I mean, there. I think there was one year in the 1950s where he did around 
uh, 16 film oh school. Um, and, and all throughout the 1960s, I mean, it would be five film scores one year, uh, <clears throat> nine film scores the next year, 10 film scores the next year. It, it, it just, it, I think really it became a blur to him. Mm-hmm. I think that he probably could have spoken more about Godzilla because, you know, in, in his later life, because when he scored Godzilla, it was such a unique film. It was, it was groundbreaking. It was, it was the first of a, of a genre. I think, you know, the, the pro the artistic process of what it would have, what he would have experienced artistically putting into that movie would have stuck out to him more by the time he gets to Atragon, where it's just something a little bit more routine. Yeah. Hey guys, uh, just really quickly, because we're on the subject, it's very interesting because you brought up Atragon, and I think, Eric, I might have brought this up to you before, but I think it bears repeating. I personally hear a little bit, I hear a little bit of nationalism in his march for Atragon, or the uh, the Gotengo. Oh, I, yeah, it's very, it's, it's and, well, it has a very militaristic... Well, e- well, even beyond that, um, I will point out, okay, the, the score to Atragon... The score to Godzilla versus King Ghidorah, specifically the stuff for the soldiers and the Lagos Island garrison, and Kishimai, which the piece that he wrote during World War II, which we performed in 2015 during Symphonic Fury. Um, the connection is if you listen to the the uh, the melody for the uh, the Gotengo, that's almost the same as from the beginning of Kishimai. Mm-hmm. He would use very similar figures in a lot of his more nationalistic um, compositions. And, for instance, Atragon also has that, you know, mm-hmm. that part. That has a lot of similarities to the uh, the Lagos Island Garrison uh, when they're in the cave doing their speech. And you hear that, you know, like that. So, and I apologize if my pitch is off. It's been over my time, but um, I, I definitely think that you're onto something with maybe the way he approached that particular military march in Atragon, as opposed to like the uh, the Mazer Tank march. Yeah. His for- Mecha Godzilla theme is kind of like that too, <laughs> from '93. Oh, the uh, yeah, that that that's more that that strikes me as less nationalistic. It strikes me as just heavy machinery, yeah. like he. He wrote exactly to what it was, but I, I definitely think that the connection, um, uh, his connection possibly to the subject matter of Atragon is not without merit. Mm-hmm. And I don't disagree. I just, you know, I, I think that in, and this is something that I've, I've come to realize that in the study of his music, especially his film music, there's, there's a lot of conjecture and educated guessing that has to go on because, as I mentioned, he simply did not talk about his film music to his family. He didn't talk about it to his colleagues. And it's been a point of frustration for me because I've asked questions to his family and to his colleagues about, you know, this film score, that film score, and and the answer is the same. I don't know. He never talked about it. So... Yeah, I mean, I don't doubt for a minute what John is saying. I think there's a lot of validity to it. But, you know, if if we are asked to to have something more definitive than an educated guess, that's we can't do it. We can only go on conjecture. He just 
it got to a point in, in his career, again, I, I think definitely by the, the early to mid 60s where you know, he sort of found his groove as a film composer. And because you know, it's a complaint and it's a legitimate complaint that people have about his music is that he recycles a lot of material mm-hmm. and and he does. But I, I think you really start to hear that in the 1960s when he was just fulfilling a an obligation to a studio. Whereas if you listen to his film scores in the 1950s, they're, they're, they're much more, there's much more fresh thinking. They're much more original. His, his scores from Godzilla 54 to Rodan to the Mysterians to, to Veron, uh, you know, battle in outer space, you can go from score to score to score in the 1950s. And they all sort of have their very distinct personalities. Uh, certainly by the time you get to Godzilla, um, Mothra versus Godzilla, things sort of, even out and you kind of get the impression that he has found his groove and he has found his recipe and he says, okay, well, you know, this is, this is the recipe that I'm going to follow for all of these subsequent monster films. Restaurants open and, for business. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, um, it's funny. Yeah. So, so I, I think what John has to say about Atragon is, is completely valid, but unfortunately, uh, definitively say if that's true or not, because he just either refused or was, uh, completely uninterested in talking about uh, his uh, his films to, yeah. to a certain extent. Yeah. So yeah. And, well, especially for you, you know, doing his biography, it's frustrating to not know what he thought about <laughs> so many of these films that he had such a huge part in. Well, I, I, I'll just say this though. I mean, what, what Eric is saying is correct, but if if you have the good fortune to see his manuscripts, there's a lot of information uh, um, apart from musical information in those manuscripts. And again, a lot of it does come down to taking educated guesses and, you know, theories and things of that nature. But um, he definitely, he wrote detailed stuff. He didn't just treat his film scores like they were, I mean, they were paychecks to him. It was a way that he sustained himself, but he did, put a great amount of care into his film scores. I mean, his manuscripts are works of art. I do have a question in regards to uh, Godzilla. Um, I think there was a quote that he talked about how, you know, during uh, when he scored Godzilla versus Destroya, and he talked about how basically it was like recording his own funeral music or something to that effect. Was there something, can, can you talk about his attachment to the character before we talk about the recording for 1954 and, and what maybe Godzilla meant to him by the end of his career? Well, I, I think that, you know, again, when, when it comes to him talking about his film music, there's, there's a lot of blank spaces and a lot of um, conflicting information. In one interview, he was once asked, what was your favorite film score? He said, none of them. In another interview he was asked the same question and he said godzilla 54 i am inclined to feel that godzilla 54 probably was his favorite film score because it was the piece of music it was the score that really put his name on the map i mean there's there's no there's no denying that uh it's certainly his most famous you know that that's his most famous piece of music bar none there's there's no question about that he took a, you know, for for reasons that I already mentioned, you know, Godzilla being this representation of a of a, uh, a pagan god of nature who is impervious to 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 the West's technology. So there was that appeal to him. But I think there was also a um, he was endeared to Godzilla because Godzilla 
because of Godzilla, he, he became basically overnight a household name in Japan. That music has been so famous and so popular in Japan since the original film came out in 54. Before His, his house in the Oyamadai neighborhood of Setagaya, Tokyo, before it was recently torn down, unfortunately, you know, in his... In his backyard, he had several vinyl Bandai Godzilla figures in display, on display in his garden. Um, and I think that says a lot. I think that says a lot about his, 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 affect, his uh, affection for, for the character. Um, but I, I think that uh, on, on many levels, he saw Godzilla as, as something very significant to his to his career. I mean, it literally was his most famous music and it, it really put his, his name on the map and you, you can't, I don't think you can go to Japan and, and encounter someone that doesn't, that doesn't know that. But well, it's, it's yeah. permeated pop culture. I mean, anytime you see something on TV, that's maybe parodying a kaiju movie, you always hear a kind of an Ifukube knockoff kind of cue, uh, like, you know, uh, at the end of Cloverfield, Giacchino did a whole suite that's basically, you know, his riff on Ifukube. So uh, at this point, it, it's it's pretty much when people think of this genre in their head, if they don't think of the specific cues, they think of something like it. They think big, bombastic, and, you know, that's that's all him and a testament to his originality. Yeah, I, I agree, and, and John can probably elaborate on on what it is that you know what is that Ifukube that Ifukube or Ifukube sound? What is what is that Godzilla sound? It's it's a recipe, as I mentioned, that I think he 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 really uh, perfected, if you will, by at least Mothra versus Godzilla, and perhaps John can elaborate a little bit more on on what exactly is his kaiju sound? What are some of the the most uh, outstanding elements of that of that sound that we all are so familiar with. Are we speaking like musically, like instrument wise, or just in, in more of like the emotional impact, or both? Well, I, I, well, I would say both. Well, um, as far as recipes go, if Kube definitely had his recipe for giant monsters, it was usually at fifty six beats per minute adagio grotesco, um, as he would as he notated on his Godzilla theme and on Baragon's theme. And um, I think Ghidorah might have been something a little different, but um, it's basically the same tempo. Uh, basically these slow, lethargic uh, tempos with shifting time signatures. And essentially his the, the, um, the roar of the music was always the same. It was the, uh, the low end was always a contrabass cello, um, bassoon, contrabassoon, bass clarinet, uh, two trombones, bass trombone, and percussion. And that that right there, just that lineup, uh, if I'm not missing anything, and piano, of course, and piano often used as percussion, that was pretty much his winning recipe for kaiju music. Every single one of his monster themes pretty much follows that, that recipe. And... Um, and I just think that, like any good chef, um, so to speak, him being a musical chef, he just found a winning taste. He found something that just worked, and it kept people coming back. And 
it's just his genius. He he he's he's wonderful. He understood these movies. He understood the sensibility of these creatures, and I think a lot of it has to do with what Eric said. He loved biology. He loved reptiles. He loved nature. He grew up in nature um, up in Hokkaido. So tying directly into what Eric said about his fascination with Godzilla, that the cre- that nature could not be taken down by conventional um, blunt force. I, I just I think he. he he used that inspiration to really just craft a winning recipe for no, for lack of a better term. All right. Well, um, unless anyone has any, any objections, we can get into what's really our main topic, which is the 54 score. Uh, Matt, before we have them take it away with that, was there anything else that you had that you wanted to ask? Now, my my other question we're going to talk about during the 54 score, so I'll, I'll save that for okay, the Okay, well, I, I know that uh, the 54 score has been on both of these gentlemen's minds, and uh, they told us also there were some, uh, some, some, I guess, rumors or some misinformation floating around about the 54 score that are kind of bullshit, and so I'm... I'm eager to hear what they have to say. So, I mean, guys, I guess this is your your platform to run away with it. Just uh, so, I mean, uh, earlier on, you gave us the rundown of you know why Toho was interested in him and how he got hired. So, uh, it, after that, I mean, what was the process like for writing and recording this this score? Well, I'll I'll start out a little bit on that. Yeah, like I said earlier. Uh, in the Japanese film world, Ifukube had the reputation for having the, uh, the the biggest orchestras, the biggest sound. His orchestras were the most expensive to uh, to hire because it required so many musicians. So, when you have a big monster, you have to have a big sound to accompany him. So, I think it was just the the natural choice. It was uh, Tomiyuki Tanaka, the producer of uh, of Godzilla, who personally selected the composer for this job, because again, you know, if Kube had been working for Toho previously, it, it, he was by no means a, uh, an unknown person by that point, but Tanaka was quite clearly aware of the size and, and grandness of, of this composer's music. So it was only natural that he would be the one that was, that was asked. Um, if Kube was immediately drawn to the subject after reading the script again, for the reasons that I outlined, it was this, this idea that it was this, this force of nature that was impervious to, to the Western techno technology that had defeated, defeated Japan in, in the war, you know, Godzilla is, is worshiped as, as a God on a, uh, primitive, if you will, Japanese Island. So, you know, presentation of the of the old traditions of the old uh the old pagan ways of japan being stronger than than tanks and planes all of this western technology that was imported into japan from the west um yeah if kube uh was given the script and you know tried to visualize what kind of music to write for this this monster that was described in the in the, the screenplay, which was initially called just uh, Project G. And um, Ifukube was having trouble writing music that would relate to what he was seeing in his mind's eye. So he, he went to Eiji Tsuburaya and said, you know, I really want you to show me some of the, the footage of this monster so I can really get an idea of, of, 
of what this beast looks like, how he how he moves. I just can't write music until I have an idea. And uh, initially, Tsuburaya tried to uh, say, well, you know, just imagine a big monster and go with that. And Hikube said, no, 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 I need to see it. So Tsuburaya finally relented and, and actually let the composer look at rushes, look at footage of the monster. And that's what really helped the composer begin to devise what his music for this, this creature should sound like. Uh, Akira Takarada told me, see, there, there's, there's, this, there's this rumor that has been going on in, in, the, uh, in the kaiju literature, if you will, for, for many years, that the composer composed the music for the movie in about a week without having ever seen any footage of the film, and that's completely false. In fact, the, the film was released on November 3rd of 1954. Ithkube began working on the score at least in September of that year. When they were filming the scenes, the Odo Island scenes, which is a region of Japan called Iseshima, uh, Akira Takarada personally told me that when they were down there filming those scenes, Tomiyuki Tanaka came down with Akira Ifukube to visit the cast and crew at their hotel down there. Tanaka wanted Ifukube to observe what was happening on the set to help him get inspiration for writing this score. And um, so Ifukube was, was involved, I think, in one way or another from the very beginning. He visited the set. He was able to see footage courtesy of Tsuburaya, and that's what really helped him devise the, the sound for the monster that he did. So it is an absolute fallacy that he, he composed the score in just one week without ever having any footage. And John, is there anything you'd like to contribute to that? Well, uh, in his manuscript to Godzilla 54, there's, there are handwritten cues in English from him um, that definitely confirm that he scored to footage. Uh, like we've talked about, the uh, one main one is um, the sinking of the Bingo Maru uh, manuscript, which is basically just one page. Obviously, it's a very short cue. But um, when, the, when the scene cuts, it cuts to Takarada as Ogata, I think, picking up a telephone. And in the manuscript, there's a handwritten in English note that says, cut to telephone. So if Kube was that, de- he, he definitely saw footage and he wrote to footage. I think a lot of what has kind of helped to perpetuate the rumor that he didn't was because of the fact that he scored to footage, but he, he more or less wrote through footage. He didn't acknowledge every single beat that was going on on screen. Like, he, he would take general timings, and he would just write pieces of music that would go through the scene, that would like play through the scene, uh, versus, like, you know, like the modern Hollywood way of kind of almost, not, not necessarily Mickey Mousing a scene, but, you know, just hitting every single beat, acknowledging every single event that's going on on the screen. Um... But in regards to what Eric said, I mean, Eric, didn't you say uh, he was present at the press conference in June of 1954, and that's that's when he infamously recognized Eiji Tsuburaya from uh, bumming the sake off of him a couple of years before in Kyoto? Oh yeah, that's a very interesting story, uh, and, and that's and that's why Tsuburaya allowed Ifukube to to view these rushes. Uh, Tsuburaya didn't even allow uh, Ishiro Honda to, to, to see the rushes of the special effects footage it's because and i'm sure your listeners are very well aware of this after the war 
uh, Tsuburaya was 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 blacklisted. He was prevented by the American occupation for from participating in the production of films because he had worked on uh, Japanese propaganda films during the war. So he was a man down on his luck. And uh, if I recall correctly, at the time, in the early 1950s, was sort of trying to start his own film studio down in Kyoto, and it just, it just wasn't taking off for one reason or another. If Kube would go down to Kyoto... He lived in Tokyo at the time, but would go down to Kyoto to work at film studios like Daie and Toei, which were based down there to write and record film scores. And he would, Ifukube would go and drink at a bar where this rather disheveled, down on his luck man would, would often come in and ask to be, uh, he would bum drinks off of people. He was a man down on his luck, and Ifukube got to know this guy and would purchase this man drinks every time that he would walk into the, the bar down there in Kyoto. So during the press conference in uh, you know the summer of 1954, when they announced the production of Godzilla, Ifukube is up on stage with the rest of the Godzilla production staff and notices that the special effects director, Eiji Tsuburaya, is the guy that he used to buy drinks for down <laughs> in Kyoto, this man down on his luck. So immediately after the press conference, they, they approached each other, shook hands, and they were amazed that, oh, it's you. So when Ifukube requested to see footage of, 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 the, of Godzilla, that he wouldn't even show the director. Ifukube figured that uh, Subaraya acquiesced because Ifukube was the one nice guy that used to buy drinks for him all the time. <laughs> so he, he felt sort of a, a debt to this man to, well, you know, he used to buy me these drinks, so I guess I should do this for him. So, uh, so yeah, it's a, very, it's a very interesting story. And they, um, you know, after they had reconnected on, on, during the production of Godzilla, they stayed very, very close friends, actually. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, dude, that's a, that's a great story. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it just goes to show that, you know, you buy drinks for people, you can reap the benefits uh, some years later, perhaps. <laughs> so, um, I guess uh, with with the 54 score, so it, it wasn't composed in a week, Um how long did it actually take to complete the score? Well, if I if I recall correctly, it was probably about uh, two months. Like I said, I think that he that the composer really started to put his ideas together in September of that year. And you know, there's one obvious thing that uh, people I don't think think about when this idea comes that he had scored the film without seeing any footage. <laughs> it's the prayer for peace scene when you've got the the young girls singing the uh, the, the the prayer after Godzilla's rampage on Tokyo that's broadcast on Japanese television that drives Sarazawa to to use the oxygen destroyer. Well, they had to be filmed singing a piece of music that was obviously composed prior to that filming, uh, so. I would imagine that the prayer for peace was probably, I don't know, but I think it was probably one of the first pieces of music composed for the film because it had to be ready to go for the actual, uh, the actual production. And that scene was filmed at the Toho Gakuen School of Music in their auditorium 
it was, it's one of the, the, the largest music schools in, in, in not only Tokyo, but in Japan, period. And uh, all, of the, all of the voice, the students of voice that they could muster for this choir were brought in. And uh, the composer personally conducted their performance during that scene. So that was music, again, that was written prior to the end of the film because they, they had to film it for the film. So uh, there was that. But I would say that uh, it was probably uh, about two months that the composer took to, to write the music. And uh, the music, I don't have this information in front of me, even, even though I wrote about it, I, uh, I can't quite remember. But the, uh, the music was recorded, if I'm not mistaken, on uh, October 22nd. I thought it was the 24th, but you might be right. Yeah, somewhere in there, it was. Actually, it was give me one second, and I'll tell okay. you. Okay, thank you. <laughs> but it was, it was, it was recorded um, literally days before the the movie was actually released on November third. So I, I think maybe that's where the rumor comes from: is that it was recorded very close to the release, and then it had to be mixed into the film um, very close to the release, literally days later. But yeah, up to that point, I would, if I had to guess. From the information that I have at hand, he probably took about two months to write the score. Okay, I could see how that could get mistranslated too. Yeah, and, and another thing that is often mistranslated is that um, you know the creation of Godzilla's roar, the the, instru- the string instrument that was used for that is a is a contrabass, and um, it's this this mistranslation or this story that. Um, that the composer used the one and only contrabass in all of Japan to uh, to re- to create Godzilla's skull to to create Godzilla's roar, and that's just not true. Uh, contrabass is a routine and very common uh, instrument in in any orchestral ensemble, and and in fact, if you look at the Godzilla manuscript, you know he's got a full string section which includes contrabasses. So it's um. That's that's another rumor that has been out there for many years that just simply is not true. Okay. Any other um any more myth busting you ha- want to do? <laughs> well, John, is there any other myth busting that you can think of off the top of your head? Uh we can get some ballistics in here and we can figure something out, I guess. But <laughs> uh, myth busting and by the way, I'm sorry, just really quickly I was looking through um I'm not sure you, you might have been right, but uh, I just I pulled out Steve's first book and I saw that um, there was a suppose there he writes that there was a screening of the film like a like a, a staff screening on October 23rd. So perhaps the score was recorded prior to that. I would think so. Maybe we just got a little bit confused, but um, I don't have the. Um, I don't have like the paperwork or the charts in front of me right now. So. Well, I will say it's on my website. It's uh, chapter, if I'm not mistaken, on the biography. It's uh, chapter five, six. I think it's chapter seven. So at any rate, it's on my website. You can your your listeners can all go and and look at it, and that that's the website. Go go see for yourself. Then again, uh, I am looking at the Japanese Giants uh, issue about Godzilla 54. Uh, See, in Japanese Giants, here it is. Um, Ed wrote that the recording session was done on October 21st, 
with Ith Kubik conducting the NHK Philharmonic. So, but it wasn't the NHK Philharmonic. It was it was actually uh, the the composer personally uh, contracted um, musicians. So oh, okay. it, it, so Toho actually had uh, yeah October various 20th. various musicians that they would they would contract from various orchestras throughout the Tokyo area to come in. So it wasn't an established ensemble in other words they didn't hire the tokyo symphony or the tokyo philharmonic it was it was a mishmash of different uh musicians from the tokyo area that would would come in and perform uh just for these films so it was not the nhk philharmonic it was literally a uh conglomeration of different musicians from different orchestras in the tokyo area that's good to know come on ed that date, well, no, the, the, the date, might, date might very well be uh, correct because um, the score to Godzilla 54 is, I think, uh, what, maybe 40 minutes tops or even, not even that, right? It's probably, it's a little bit less than that. Um, and I know that, you know, uh, just from speaking to Ko Otani back in 2015, uh, he told me that all the and the GMK score were all recorded in one day, each one of them, one day for recording. So it is very likely that they did record on that date. And, you know, the, 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 the mistranslation of what orchestra it was, I mean, that, you know, these things, this is why we keep, you no know, we keep finding out new things over time. But, um, yeah, and, and, and it's true. And, and again, you know, the composer himself couldn't recall many of these details. And not only that, but didn't you also, uh, what was the story about to how uh, Kiwami had said that his dad liked to tell a good story? Oh, yeah, and the composer's son, you know, often, you know, said that his, his, his dad, if, if his dad couldn't quite remember the details of a certain anecdote, you know, if he had people come to the United States to interview him about kaiju scores, and uh, the composer couldn't quite remember the exact story. He would just make something out, make something up that sounded interesting, you <laughs> know, in, in, in order to uh, in order to uh, satisfy the curiosity of the interviewer. Um, and and just really quickly, by the way, I don't want to digress too much, but we just mentioned Ed Gajewski. Um I and I've said this to Ed in person, but I, I really want to make this very publicly clear here: is that. Uh, his interview that he did with the composer, uh, you know, Ed is one of those those people that actually got to meet and interview Yves Goubet. Ed did it. Uh, Steve Rifle and a bunch of other people got to do it. I never did. I never got to meet the composer. I will be eternally jealous of people like that that, that actually had the opportunity. But I, I really want to give Ed a major shout-out because it's, it's really because of his 1995 interview that he did with the composer that appeared in uh, that uh, that uh, issue of G Fan. I think it was the October or November it's, issue. Hang on, I got I got it right here. It is November of 1995. G Fan 18. Yeah. So that that is without a doubt the definitive English language interview of that composer. There is so much information in there, and I'll tell you when I started my website in uh, of uh, 2006 mere weeks after the composer died. It's really because of Ed's interview that I was able to do that. Ed's interview is what I consider to be sort of the 
the uh, the the cornerstone of, of everything that I do, because of that interview, which was so detailed and so rich in information, I was able to start uh, piecing together the the puzzle pieces of the composer's life. I, I don't think I could be where I am today without without Ed Ed's work on on that interview. That's so. the that's the issue with the Chris Skelf cover that's right okay yeah that's, yeah that's no that right. that is a great interview i got that i was 10 when that issue came out and uh my grandfather i remember <laughs> uh i came home from school and i was like freaking out because i was like where's my new g fan my grandfather was a huge classical music fan and i walk in the other room and he's reading that interview and i'm like what are you doing you don't care about this stuff he's like it's with the composer it's fascinating this guy is a he's a classical guy like blah 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 and like i, I don't know but that's just a testimony to how how great that piece was and not only that I, yeah. I just just if i may add really quickly um because i feel like that interview does deserve a shit ton of praise heaped on it when i after I, I did the uh, the arrangement of King Kong versus Godzilla for the Austin Wind Symphony in 2007, um, the the uh, the seed of, of, of what eventually became the two concerts that we did, that was all started with like I, I, I would write to orchestras like the New York Philharmonic, um, you know, and any anybody that I thought might be interested, New York Pops, uh, anybody that I thought would be interested in, in performing this music, trying to get this done. And I always sent two things. I sent a a CD mix, like a CDR with with, with tracks that I thought really well represented Akira Ifukube, and I sent a photocopy of Ed's interview. I have two. I have two copies of this issue of G Fan. I have one that I just keep on my shelf. And I have one that is tattered and torn that I have photocopied over and over because that was my way of kind of saying, this is who the man is. Listen to him, learn about him. And I, I would I want to join what you guys have said and just say that that is one of the greatest interviews with anybody, I think, uh, in regards to these movies that has ever appeared in a Western publication. So thank you, Ed, if you're listening out there. <laughs> If uh, you know if any of your uh, listeners are able to track down a copy of that that particular issue, I recommend that you do so and read that interview because it really is spectacular and it's fascinating. It's he he allows the composer to speak at length and really kind of delve into some of these these historical uh, anecdotes and and his ideology behind his scoring process. So Ed, thank you very much. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's a great piece. Uh, Matt, did you, what was the question you wanted to ask about <laughs> 54? Cause we're on the topic and you've, you're just sitting there. What's up? <laughs> I mean, I think we kind of covered a lot of it. Uh, I was just going to ask like, how did, how did he piece together the music? But I think that we've covered a lot of it. He got to see, I mean, we, we, we've covered most of it by this point. He got to actually see the, see the film. He got to be on set. Um, I was just kind of curious how he wrote some of the themes. And I think now is the time to kind of unveil a special surprise to all of our listeners. We have, um, man, I, well, how about this? How about either John or, or Eric, one of you two, tell us what we're going to be listening to here and uh, how it kind of came to be. Cause I, I don't, I think you guys should unveil the surprise. I will defer to John. Okay. Uh, um, what we're going to hear is a MIDI version of 
what we just call Q10 from Godzilla 1954. And this was a Q that was written for Godzilla's appearance on Odo Island, his head over the uh, the hilltop and so forth. Um, we discovered what this was. Um, basically, whenever Eric does a new a new chapter in his biography, and he has um, manuscripts to look through to you know for you know to support everything that he's doing, um, he tends to have me look them over for any kind of just to see if I have any thoughts on anything. And sometimes I, I feel fortunate that I'm able to add. I, at least I, I hope that I'm able to add something to what he does. Uh, so it was just interesting. One night I was I was looking over the uh, the surviving manuscripts to Godzilla 54, and I um, I got to a page. I think it's page 17 actually, because they're all consecutively numbered. Um, there's some cues that are missing from the original manuscript, but uh, I'm looking at this, and it's one page of of, of music. And I'm thinking, like, well, this, I'm reading it, I'm, like, reading the music notes, and I'm like, well, that sounds like the storm on Odo Island. Why the hell is this only one page? And so I started kind of plunking away at it, you know, at my keyboard. Like, there's just, like, um, well, you're not going to hear right now. But uh, so I'm looking at this, and I'm thinking, like, I, you know, I've heard this before. This is this was actually recorded at one point in time. Uh, and where it was recorded, um, except for the final measure, was on the the King of the Monsters 10 CD box set. There was a, uh, I think CD number 10 was a, a series of five suites. There was a Godzilla 54, a Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah, a Mothra 92, a Super X suite, and a Green Slime suite. I don't know what, how the hell that makes sense. Green Slime? <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, how did that get in there? <laughs> well, it's, it's five tracks, and it's a suite from each of those movies, and and they were recorded in the 1990s when the set was produced. And in there, right in the middle of that Godzilla 54 recording, is this cue. And I had first heard it, actually, at my first G-Fest in Chicago was 98, and I went to Jim Figursky's If If Kube panel, and he played that, and I was like, "Well, that's the Odo Island store music, but it, it, it's different." So, of all these years, and, and when I got the when I got the CD later on, um, I always just thought that, okay, well, the, the, whoever the com- the arranger or conductor was, basically just took liberties. He did like an interlude to kind of gel the music together. So, looking through the Godzilla Fifty Four manuscripts, this cue is 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 a page of the script, and then. Uh, it's listed as number 10 and it has an exact uh, 60 beats per minute uh, tempo which it's actually one of the only pieces that actually has an absolute tempo all the rest of the, the, the cues don't really have a tempo um, so you know I, I, I'm looking through this and then it just it hit me like a freaking ton of bricks I went to the uh, the Godzilla soundtrack perfect collection and Track, I think, number 10 on the collection is just the roars of Godzilla as he appears on Odo Island. So they actually put a space holder on the soundtrack for the uh, the perfect collection. But that cue, uh, there was a cue that was written, and that's what this is. Uh, it was written for his appearance over Odo Island, and by all accounts, it was never recorded. And efforts to kind of sync it up with the scene are... 
hit and miss. You, I mean, if you really want it to match, you got to kind of slow it down. But we had thought that maybe he wrote that for a previous cut of the scene. Maybe he wrote it for this, the uh, the legendary uh, version that where Godzilla had a cow hanging out of his mouth. But um, I went ahead and made a MIDI uh, version of it, and that's what you're going to hear. Okay, so I have two files on my laptop. One is marked Godzilla Appears on Odo Real, and the other one is just Godzilla Appears on Odo. Uh, what is the difference between these two? Uh, the one that says real, that's that's the version that was recorded on the King of the Monsters box set in the 1990s. Okay, so that and, one we will play first. Now, is this uh, a snippet from that actual CD? Yes. Okay. So, uh, here is the uh, pre-recorded on the box set version of that cue. Okay, so hopefully you enjoyed that. Uh, it's a rare piece of music. Now, John, uh, as I mentioned, the other one I have is a file just marked Godzilla Appears on Odo, uh, which is not the one that was released on this CD. So how, what is this that we're about to hear, and how is it different from what we just heard? Well, that's my ver- the one that you're about to hear is my MIDI, which is basically, it's it's very basic. It's I did it in finale. It uses the Garrett Personal Orchestra. Not the best samples in the world, but um, it was more or less just to approximate what it sounded like. And my version is complete. It's exactly as it's written in the manuscript, and it actually has the big swell at the end, uh, which was not present in the King of the Monsters box set re-recording. Okay, so this is a slightly more complete version of the cue you just heard. Uh reconstructed by John here, so enjoy that.
Uh, well, th- first of all, uh, it's fascinating to learn about this stuff and uh, just how you figured out that that weird cue that you couldn't identify was actually this, and then you reconstructed it. That's awesome. Um, so, John, thank you so much for bringing that and sharing it with us. Oh, my pleasure. It, it, it really, I think... I mean, I I called Eric. I was no, I, I think I, I sent him a message. I'm like, dude, you got to call me right now. You're not going <laughs> to believe what I just what I just discovered, and I, I couldn't believe it. I and I think it's it's a big deal that he wrote music for that scene, and it, it never <laughs> it never ended up. I mean, I personally, I, I to me that was like discovering like a Mona Lisa that nobody that's always been out there, but no, or I'm sorry, like a Da Vinci that nobody's that's been out there, but nobody's really known what it is. And I, I'm, uh, I am so grateful for that opportunity to have actually been a part of that. I mean, it, it was just wonderful to discover that piece of music. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll never, I'll never forget that night. And see, the thing was that, uh, when, when the manuscripts were sent to me, they were sent to me and I had them for, Oh, I, I don't even know anymore. It was it was at least several months. It might have been even as much as a year. And I, I can read music. I can re- I can write music, but I'm I'm not as I'm not as talented musically as John is. I mean, I can look at a at a piece of score, and after really really looking at it, kind of determine what it is. John can look right at it as if he's reading, you know, a uh, uh, you know a page of, of 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 text and know exactly what it is that he's reading. So John is much more. Uh, much more capable at picking up on what he's actually looking at than I am. So I had the score, and then I I had thumbed through it, but I wasn't really going to start looking at it very hard until the time came for me to really write about the Godzilla 54 score. So the time came, and I sent it off to John so he could look at it and start uh, preparing some preliminary remarks about what he was looking at. And it was very late. I'm on the West Coast. He's on the East Coast. It was at, you know, probably around at least midnight my time. So, you know, yeah, it was close to 4 a.m. here. I, I remember that. That's yeah. So he messages me and he's like, you're not going to believe what is in this manuscript, what I, I'm looking at. And of course, like I said, I had looked at it, but not very closely. And I was I was curious what. And I mean, John, I think he, he called me, you know, we, we uh, and he's just ranting and raving about this. And, and he's telling me that, yeah, this is this music that I've heard on this this recording from this box set that was released years ago. And um, because of its position in the manuscript, he was able to determine where it would have belonged in the movie. And what uh, John didn't mention this, but what he's done is that he's actually, because he mentioned that on the manuscript, it's 60 beats per, per minute, that if you play the music at 60 beats per second, I'm sorry, per minute, it, matches perfectly with the scene where they're all running up the side of the mountain on Odo Island. When Godzilla's head appears in the manuscript, there's a big timpani drum roll that, uh, that uh, underscores Godzilla's yes. head appearing. In other words, you know, there's that big trombone swell at the end of the queue that is ostensibly supposed to accompany Emiko's scream, and then it cuts off right as you cut back to the side of the mountain and Godzilla is gone. Um, everything syncs up perfectly up to the point of Godzilla's head appearing. Then after that, it, it goes off. So what that suggests to us, it, it sort of is a clue as to why the, the cue was written but not actually put in the movie. 
is that it appears that he had written a piece of music to perfectly sync up with a cut of that scene. Perhaps at the last minute, the scene was recut. And because it was recut, the music that he had originally written for it was no longer useful. He would have had to have recomposed the cue in order to make sure it fit perfectly with all of the action on the screen. Probably it was recut at the last minute. He didn't have time to, to update the cue to, to match the action of the new cut. So, so he elected not to record it and add it because there was nothing he could do. But again, this flies in the face of the notion that he had written music without ever seeing uh, a cut of the film because up to the point where Godzilla's head appears at 60 beats per minute, which is very, very clearly uh, notated on the manuscript, it fits perfectly with what you're seeing as they're running up the hill up until the scene, uh, up until the moment where Godzilla's head appears over the, the side of the mountain. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that it's, a, it's meant to begin um, right after, you know, the guy's ringing the bell and right on the scene where you, you first start seeing people run up the mountain and, even if you listen to, obviously you heard it, that boom, 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 boom. It's got this rising kind of um, ostinato underneath the uh, the storm, the Odo Island storm kind of uh, motif that he did. And um, so I'm, I'm pretty sure that that's about where, where it should have been. And I think you're exactly correct that it was probably for a another cut of the scene. And that's why it wasn't recorded. But fortunately for us, it, is, it was preserved in his writing. And what's very strange, and I'll just interject this really quickly, is that, as John mentioned, the, the manuscript that is extant is not complete. So you have this cue in there, this cue number 10, which was written but ultimately not recorded, or at the very least not actually used in the film. But you have other cues that were most definitely used in the film that do not exist in the extant manuscript. So, for example, the beautiful music at the end of the movie, Godzilla on the Ocean Floor, when Ogata and Sirizawa uh, go into Tokyo Bay to, to use the oxygen destroyer. For whatever reason, that entire uh, uh, segment of the score is does not exist in the extant manuscript. But this Q10 is. Um, and also, the... The actual Odo Island storm cue doesn't exist in the manuscript either. That, that's what confused me initially. That's what actually got me looking at this um, this page because I was like, okay, well, this the melody here, everything, this, this is the, the storm music, but it's not. It's different, and it's only one page. How in the hell, like, what's going on here? And that's actually what made me look more into it. And then, you know, when I actually figured out what the hell we were looking at. Yeah, and it's just so funny that this this had been under my nose the whole time because again I had it and I had thumbed through it you know very in a very uh, you know blasé way, um, but it was it was John that really was able to take a look at it and really get down to the nitty gritty and and really interpret what we were looking at and that was just that was just amazing it, it's um, and it's a cool piece of music I mean I, I'm sure that your your listeners uh, probably agree that it's actually a pretty pretty cool uh haunting piece of music and what's the irony of it is that in an interview later in his life the composer had mentioned that he had just watched godzilla again and he said that you know i was watching that odo island scene when godzilla first appears over the mountain he said i really think that i should have added music there 
in order to have made that scene more impactful. <laughs> so, um, you know, the irony is, is that he had written music for it, but for whatever reason, uh, decided not to add it. And then later in his life, when he reviewed that scene again, thought, yeah, should have had music there. Speaking for myself, I think the cue is great. And I think that it, uh, if, uh, there was some way to have, uh, to have included it in the film, it would have worked very well. It's yeah. also worth. Oh, I'm sorry. Just really quickly, it's also worth mentioning that um, the uh, the song that the sailors are playing on the Echo Maru at the beginning, um, on the uh, on the guitar and with the harmonica. Uh, obviously, in the film, the song gets cut off when the uh, the explosion happens in the water, and then all hell breaks loose. Uh, if Kube actually wrote a complete melody, he wrote a complete song out of that, and it's not recorded but it is in the manuscript as well the complete ship melody oh nice well should we should we take this opportunity to uh, to play that now too i think we can probably do it right john oh i think we can too uh, you guys want to hear it yeah i didn't even know we had that so yeah here is the 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 melody from the the ship and what's the name of the the actual it's just it's the the cue is the sinking of the echo maru okay the first ship but um it's just, it's just a, you know, it's a melody written for a, for a guitar and, and a harmonica. So, yeah, here's right. another little surprise. Let's hear. So, it. so yeah, this is this is the the complete melody. You've probably never heard this before, but this is this is the uh, exactly what he wrote. So you're going to hear the extended cut of the <laughs> harmonica and guitar music right before Godzilla sinks that ship. So right, here, well. here it is.
All right, no, that's an awesome surprise. Uh, I don't know why. I don't know why I didn't think of it before. I'm sorry. We were so we were so stuck on Q10 that I forgot. Oh yeah, that's right. The ship melody was. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> yeah we got that too. <laughs> so had Godzilla not been such a jerk and sunk that ship, that's the song <laughs> we would have heard. That is, the sailors would have got to finish their song. Uh, no, that is that is awesome. What a cool surprise! And is that that has not been recorded anywhere by anybody, has it? Um, I haven't heard it anywhere. But um, Makoto Inoue, who um, is—I mean, you might know from doing the Godzilla Legend chronology CDs—he just recently performed in New York City back in April with um, Hikashu. Uh, the, he reunited with the with um, with his old band. And they, I'm sure they recorded, but they do like a vocal version. Like, like if you know, if you know his music, he kind of he writes lyrics to a lot of the melodies as part of like his band's arrangements of Ifukube. But he has done the full ship melody in his own way. I mean, I haven't heard it in its pure form, like right off the manuscript yet. So maybe it, maybe somebody recorded it out there, but I haven't heard it yet. All right. Well, aside from that, unheard. Wait, wait, one second, um, Eric. Didn't Carol Wada do that on his? Yeah, I was. I was just about to say. Yeah, um, there. Uh, last year, there was a a uh, re-recording done of most of the Godzilla score by a Japanese composer by the name of Kaoru Wada, who was himself a student of the composer back in the 1980s, and Wada did a. Uh, uh, yeah, for all intents and purposes, a re-recording of the Godzilla 54 score. And on his recording, he does include the entirety of the guitar and harmonica music that we just heard um, from the Eiko Maru, but he does not include uh, the Q10 that we played previous to that. So that's, okay. uh, yeah. All right, cool. cool. I, feel, I feel fancy, guys. You make us feel fancy. <laughs> Well, hey, you know, all you have to do is ask. Ask to have a song, and, and this is, you know, we, we, we come bearing gifts. Well, Rare if Fukube is a wonderful this, gift. This has been, I mean, we wrote about this, what, almost two years ago now? Yeah, and that's and that's what's so funny about all of this is that I had act, the, the, the piece that uh, John helped me write for my website. I have an entire chapter devoted to the uh, the composition of the Godzilla 54 score. And um, and I can tell you, if you want to hear the, the most authentic account of the creation of the roar, Godzilla's roar, if you want to hear that. Um, and I can tell you about that in a minute. But, um, yeah, I mean, this was posted on my website i think in 2014 if i'm not mistaken so here we are in in 2017 the time of this recording and i think some people have gone on there to to look at it and read it but i have no doubt that this is <laughs> the <laughs> the first time many many people have heard about this stuff and certainly on my website i don't have the uh, the capability to actually play the music that we talk about on your platform here on the kaiju transmissions you do so i i really hope that this is a uh, a revelation and something that's uh, pretty mind blowing to to a lot of your listeners. Oh yeah, that's fascinating stuff. It is. It really is. And um, you know, it's there, there's a whole hidden world out there. You know, about the the backstories of, of these films, the creation of these films. And you know, what I try to do in writing my biography is, to some extent, expose at least from the the musical end, 
some of the uh, some of the backstories here and and dispel some of the rumors, which is a good segue into the creation of of the Godzilla roar, which is something that has been often written about and uh, just as often misrepresented. <laughs> uh, I, I have what I uh, truly believe to be the most authentic account of what went into the creation of the roar, and I'll, I'll share that with you now. Um, your listeners are probably aware that uh, sound technicians from Toho went to the Ueno Zoo in Tokyo and recorded the grunts and growls of various animals and you know played those back at different speeds, played them in reverse, added echo and all sorts of different effects to try to, to get something that would be appropriate for, for Godzilla's roar, and, and nothing seemed to work. So Honda had the idea that maybe the composer, who was an expert in acoustics and an expert in sound, might be able to come up with something. And Honda said to the composer, look, we've got this giant reptile. I want you to create a roar from him. And of course, Yves Kube, being the very literal sort of biologically minded guy, said, well, reptiles don't have vocal cords. They, they can't make noises. You know, uh, alligators can't make noises. Uh, other reptiles can't make noises. What a bizarre request. And I think Honda was a little frustrated and said, well, look, Godzilla is not just any reptile. He's some sort of supernatural being. He's a mutant. So unlike other reptiles, he can make noises. So create something. So Ikubi, I think, went with that. So he thought that because the sound technicians couldn't create anything with animal noises, that perhaps musical instruments might be able to, to yield the desired effect. So as we were talking about earlier with Toho, um, you know, Toho contracted its musicians to come in and actually at the studio toho had its own uh assemblage of, of musical instruments that could be used by musicians if the musicians showed up and didn't have an instrument to use on their own and in toho's musical instrument archive they had a really beat up contrabass which is you know the contrabass is the largest uh, stringed instrument of of the of the symphony orchestra and it was a rather beat-up instrument. And, uh, in fact, I was having this conversation with the composer's son in, uh, it was uh, 2014, after the composer's 100th anniversary concert at the, at the Tokyo Symphony. We had a special dinner afterwards, and I was talking with the composer's son, and he was telling me this story that the, uh, the contrabass that they had at Toho was, was very beat-up. It, it was missing its back. It was just a, a terribly beat-up instrument. And I think this gave Ifkube the idea, well, it's already beat up, so let's let's abuse it a little bit more. So what they did was, uh, the, the composer Ifkube, his assistant at the time, was another burgeoning composer by the name of Sei Ikeno. And what they did was they took this contrabass and they, uh, they, they completely removed the strings from the, uh, the peg box at the top of the instrument. The lowest pitched string of the contrabass is the E string. So what he did was he had his assistant say Ikeno, uh, who and John, what 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 score did Ikeno compose? Was it the Human Vapor or? Um, I think it was Matango, wasn't it? No, 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 that was Sadao oh. Beku. Oh, um, Sadao, that was Beku. Um, uh, let's see, Ikemadan was Gore. Was that Gora? Uh, Google, Google it, John, quickly. Oh, so any, <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, say it's Ikeno, too late at night, guys. <laughs> So say Ikeno, uh, what Ifkube had Ikeno do was take the E string and had Some Ikeno put on... Which one? Some expert I am. Okay. So he had Ikeno uh, put on... See, I'm sorry. Secret of Telegion. 
Okay, the Telegian. Okay, so Say Ikeno yeah, yeah. was the guy that composed the music for the Telegian, Secret of the Telegian, and again, he was Ikube's sort of secretary at the time. So what he did was he had Ikeno put on two leather gloves and coated the gloves in pine tar. So after they loosened the E string, the, the, the string was still attached to the instrument at the bridge, so in other words, at the base of the instrument, but the string was completely detached at the top from the peg box. So Ikeno took a hold of the E-string with both of his gloved hands covered in pine tar as if he was, you know, choking the string, if you can think of it that way, with two hands, and would just jerk his hands towards him, like, uh, as if he, you know, he would grab it and sort of like that. So when they recorded it, they recorded uh, this composer, Ikeno, doing several pulls on the E-string, and that's what created Godzilla's roar. So after they took those recordings, they slowed them down, and Toho's main sound technician for that film was a guy by the name of Ichiro Minawa. Minawa had retained some of the recordings of the animal sounds from the Tokyo Zoo and layered those animal sounds on top of the different contrabass poles. So, so what, where are you guys? <laughs> I, I'm, 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 I'm broadcasting from the dumpster behind Denny's right now. <laughs> it sounds like it. No, no, no. I, I was going to say, like, they're coming for us for all this misinformation. Uh, no, I, 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 I live on a busy street. I call it either Siren Central or Ambulance Alley. I constantly, I have a, I have a fire station up the street. So oh, that was, when someone funny. falls and can't gets up, my, uh, my, my evening is ruined. I'm actually astounded that the, the siren didn't come on my end because I live on a main street in Bethlehem and there's a fire company block away from me that is always, so I'm, I'm happy with the way that's gone. Anyway, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, Eric no, no, no. continues. So, so anyway, so uh, it's, it's, a, it's the E string of the contrabass being pulled by, say, Ikeno with animal sounds layered on top of it, and neither Ichiro Minowa, the, uh, the sound technician, nor the composer could remember specifically which animal sounds were used. So, because uh, I, I know that people have tried this, and I've, I think even for the 2014 film, uh, the sound technicians for that were trying to replicate Godzilla's roar by doing something similar with the contrabass, but you know it, it, it wouldn't be exact because uh, again there were animal sounds that were layered on top of it. So you'd, it's a, it's a combination of of that plus the the animal sounds. But uh, so but it's, that, it's, but, it's uh, not as simple as he ha- he rubbed a glove on a contrabass. Yeah, no, yeah, it was it was pine tar, and see the thing is with the with the the you know the pine tar being very sticky and the uh, the leather gloves being not very um, you know it, the, the, as you're pulling, you know it, there's a lot of friction. It's not a, it's not smooth. There's a lot of a lot of resistance, a lot of pull, and as you're pulling very tightly on it, it, it causes a vibration in the string that um, is reacting to this very abrasive pull. So it's a very guttural. And um, and uh, I suppose off-putting sound, not at all musical. It really does sound like some sort of guttural bellow or some roar. But that's that's what it was. It was putting an awful lot of friction on the lowest uh, pitched string of the instrument. Yeah, that's definitely a much more thorough explanation <laughs> than I've ever heard. Yeah, and and what's so cool about about that story is that you know that's that's where I've been very lucky that in in my work you know being able to have to being able to work with even though I never met the composer himself uh, working with the late composer's family former students and colleagues 
you know, it's, it's, it's the next best thing. And, uh, you know, this is, this is firsthand, uh, you know, this is as close to firsthand information as you can get. So I'm, I'm, I'm very lucky to have this access and I'm, I'm very proud that the, uh, that this access has, has given my work the, the authority and the authenticity that it has. Well, we're happy that uh, you guys have come on and, and shared it with us. It's been it's been a great episode, actually. I mean, I, I think well, a having having the musical cues that we've had and, and having the information, um, it, it's been a lot of fun. And, and is there anything else you you want to add? Any other uh, myths you want to dispel? Yeah, you guys can add whatever you want. John, <laughs> um, is V eight juice one third gasoline or what? <laughs> we're that what the jury's still out on that one. I was I was trying. It was a the Simpsons reference. I just can't remember exactly. What this but um, no, honestly, like I, it's it's always a pleasure to listen to Eric kind of talk about this stuff because he's much more he's he's much more articulate than I am, and he's able to intellectualize things much better than I am. So um, I've been very fortunate just being able to hear the dogs go nuts <laughs> yeah i'm telling you i i live in a noise i live in a noisy area i was gonna say dude are you in the dog town or what <laughs> you know, like i told you guys before don't feel bad i had on our uh, bando episode i was outside and like a train had been stuck on the same track for like two hours and which is going crazy they, the listeners probably thought I lived like right next to the train tracks when in reality it's like probably five miles away. <laughs> yeah, I, I was hoping those sirens wouldn't wouldn't happen, but inevitably they did. But anyway, like I, said, I, can't, I can't believe that it was on your end and not mine. But honestly, uh, you know, I, I think this this really is all about it, it's all about if Kube and the appreciation of the music and the composer and the man. But really. Eric's website is the best resource for that. He's been invaluable. Um, it really he, is. It's such a dense, comprehensive, like, it, it, it's really, it really is like having, like we said earlier, a book that's just on and, your computer screen. And not only that, it's just, like our, our work kind of has the same goal, but we go about it through different means. Um, my concentration has always been wanting to have this music be live in front of people so they can experience it in a way that you don't get by listening to a a CD. And Eric was absolutely to say, and I can't do, I can't do it justice enough by saying he was invaluable. Uh, The two concerts that we did wouldn't have been what they were without him. And the material between the materials he sent me, the kind of access that I got to Toho music, working with them, licensing, and renting like the symphonic fantasias and all that stuff. Um, you know, Eric really is like the guy and I hope we're not coming off as too self-congratulatory, but I mean, I, I'm just for the listeners out there, you know, th- we love these movies. We love the toys. We love the model kits and all that stuff, but the movies are always going to be what matters. And what happens behind the scenes of these movies is, is fascinating. And, we're continuously learning new things, and I'm sure that even in our line of work, um, being with the with the music and and if Kube and even like the other composers, we're still learning things. And I'd like to think that there's more to find out. And just stay tuned and and keep reading, keep watching the skies. You know, just 
<laughs> yeah. Believe, please believe. I agree a hundred percent. For me, it's never been about the toys or the this. It's always been about the movies and how they're made. And... It's hey, it's all nice stuff, but I think it all comes from the movies. The movies are are, are step one. You, you have to love what these things are all about, and I, I think we all do. Agreed. Yeah, and uh, regarding my website, I just want to uh, give everybody, if there's anyone out there that actually looks at it and follows it, I'm in the midst of doing a pretty uh, broad-based sweeping revision of it. Um, You know, I started writing the biography uh, such as it is now, probably around, I would, if I had to guess, I can't quite remember. Although I started the website in 2006, I didn't start organizing the biographical material into the way it is now until I think about 2013. And um, as I've gone along, I've gotten better. I've gotten better as a writer. I've gotten better as an organizer of the material. I've gotten better as a researcher. So, uh, you know, if you go back and look at some of the earlier chapters that I've done compared to some of the more recent chapters that I've done, I've looked at that and I'm like, oh, how could I have written that way? What a bad transition. Uh, you know, this uh, this sequence of events isn't presented very well. So what I'm actually doing is I'm right now at the time of this podcast is I'm going back and I'm doing a, a revision where I'm, I'm tightening material, I'm correcting material, I'm adding uh, material. So um, I've already updated chapters two and three. I'm currently working on a revision of chapter four, which covers his life and activities during sec- the Second World War. And then uh, chapter one, I am ex- I'm waiting on some information, some archival information to come back to me from northern Japan at some point this month. So uh, once I get that, I will uh, begin revising that. So if anyone is, as I mentioned, uh, a fan of the site, uh, please just uh, be aware that uh, the, the text is, is getting better. And as soon as I've got uh, various, you know, whatever the various sections uh, updated and revised, I will announce that on my social media outlets. I've got a, aside from akuraifukube.org, my website, I also have a Facebook page that you can find me at. Uh, the name of the of the Facebook page is akuraifukube.org. And I also have a, a fairly new Twitter page that you can also follow me on Twitter. So I, I whenever there's a, a new addition to the website, an update, or any such thing, I do announce it on those outlets, and that's a great way for people to keep in touch with me and uh, keep uh, keep uh, keep themselves apprised of what's new on the website. All right, and and what's the Twitter handle? I, I'm not on Twitter, but I understand you need a Twitter handle, right, Matt? Yeah, ours is, uh, like, for example, ours is KT underscore podcast. Do you know what your Twitter, <laughs> Twitter right. handle is? Yeah, it's akuraifukubeorg, not .org. So there's there's no there's no period or point mark in there. It's just the no spaces, akuraifukubeorg, and then uh, you'll be able to find me on Twitter. And it's, and it's the same handle, at least I think it's the same handle, for, uh, for Facebook. But Your I'm Facebook very... has a dot in it. Does it? Yeah, man. Well, you know, it's a good thing you keep track of this stuff because our, our social media skills are so inept. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's true. At, at least mine are, you know, and and by the way, you know, the website uh, is, is a very old school looking website. I started, as I mentioned, I had started it in 2006. And at the time, I didn't know how to buy a domain name. I didn't know 
Uh, I didn't know how to create a website. When I first bought the domain name, I was using one of those old school templates. So the site didn't look all that great. But a friend of mine gave me an old version of a website building software called Dreamweaver. I don't even know if that's... <laughs> I remember Dreamweaver. <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know if that's something people use anymore, but that's that's what I use. So, you know, that is one thing I do want to bring up is that the, the, the website does have a very old school look to it. Um, I'm completely aware of that. People may go there and think, geez, how old is this, this, this <laughs> clunker of, of a site? But keep in mind is that you know, I'm not a web designer, and and uh, Dreamweaver is not very intuitive. So I, I'm doing the best I can with the limited skills that I have. But I'd like to think that, you know, despite any uh, stylistic uh, um, shortcomings on the website, that it, it it's the the information that's there more than makes up for it. Uh, yeah, no, it's it's great info. And like I said, super in-depth. And if you guys like what you heard and want to know more, please go on uh, akirafukubay.org and check it out because there's just so much there and there's more coming. So, Absolutely. Stay tuned. All right. Matt, John, any either of you guys have any, uh, any last words here you want to go out with? Uh, just thanks for being on, guys. We appreciate you coming yeah, on the show. Yeah, no, thank you. There's a, yeah, this has uh, all been a lot of great info. Thank you so much for bringing those tracks. Uh, yeah, no, it's 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 been really informative and really appreciate you coming on here. Thank you guys for having us. Uh, you know, we had a lot of fun talking at G-Fest, and it's, you know, this is a lot of fun to do. I mean, I, I, I think that I can speak for Eric, myself, I mean, like all of us. We, we just we love talking about this stuff. We love talking about the things that we that we really care about with these movies. Um, some people like the special effects more. You know, you got guys like like Ed and Steve who are who are the Honda guys. Like they have, they can speak to that amongst other things. And um, it's it's always a joy to talk about Godzilla music. I mean, for me, I love talking about Eve Kube as well. But I love talking about the music in general and. It just it's a lot of fun and thank you for having us yeah thank you so much i john and i can talk about this stuff for hours and uh and we have in the past so any opportunity that we have to share what we have been able to to research and learn with others is always always a welcome opportunity so thank you to you both we yeah. uh we have, I, I speaking for both of us i'm sure We had a lot of fun. Yeah, no, uh, and we learned a lot too. So, all right, uh, thanks again to Eric and John, and uh, we will um, catch you guys next time. All right, good night, everybody.